We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. Uh, tonight we have a very special event, but in a nod to tradition, we start as we always do. To those of you who are in the clubhouse for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. And please join me as we welcome both of our special guests tonight, the author John Rosengren and the filmmaker Aviva Kepner. <laughs> to those of you listening to the podcast, you just missed, unfortunately, uh, for you, a 10-minute uh, a screening of this beautiful documentary, The Life and Times of Hank Greenberg. Uh, Aviva will be joining the Q&A in a few moments. But for now, we're going to start with John Rosengren, the author of... Really, it's a, it's a fantastic book. You, you made me cry throughout. I don't know if I was supposed to or not. But uh, Hank, Greenberg, uh, it's <laughs> Hank Greenberg, The Hero of Heroes by John Rosengren, published by New American Library. And for those of you who come to a lot of our events, you know that one of the things I hate is when an author gets up and opens the book and reads page 17, and uh, everybody falls asleep. So it drives me nuts. Uh, because it takes an interesting book or an interesting subject and, and makes it boring. In this case, though, uh, I think what we're going to do is because so, the book is so beautifully written, what I'd like to do is read just paragraphs here and there which will then bring us into that topic within the book. And I, the best place to start is page one. Uh, ironically, it, uh, you, you had me at hello, as they say, uh, because I opened the book and I thought it was going to be Hank Greenberg's childhood or something like that or about his parents. And I opened the book and chapter one of this book is entitled Lashana Tova. And Rich, what does that mean? Happy New Year. There you go. All right. Uh, so right away I was, you, you caught me. And this is the opening paragraph of the book and then you can take it from there. Inside the Detroit clubhouse, Hank Greenberg sat slumped on a stool in front of his locker, still dressed in his street clothes. Around him, his teammates readied for that afternoon's game against the Boston Red Sox, buttoning jerseys, buckling belts, lacing spikes, but the Tigers' first baseman did not budge. It was September 10th, 1934, Rosh Hashanah. Oh, that's beautiful. We go on. <laughs> <laughs> so you want me to? Uh, if you story? could, yeah. Just yeah. Uh, why did you decide to open the book that way? And if you may, then want to talk a little bit about that particular part of Hank's life. Yeah. Well, what fascinated me about Greenberg's story is here's a guy who uh, is playing in the 30s and 40s, a time of intense ethnic identification a lot of anti-Semitism, not just here, here in the United States where anti-Semitism was as common as Jim Crow laws uh, practiced down south, and it was socially acceptable in many circles. And then he's playing baseball, which is the national pastime. And this 23-year-old kid um, comes to the majors, and he suddenly has this difficult decision to make um, whether or not to honor his commitment to his parents who are Orthodox Jews, not to play on the high holidays, or to play for uh, his team, fulfill a civic duty to play for his team who's battling for a pennant and they're, um, it's in Detroit uh, where they haven't won a pennant in 25 years and the depression has taken root in 1934 so baseball provides a diversion 
And so there's a lot of pressure on him both ways. And, but it's not just his decision anymore. It becomes a decision that, like much of his career, or I would maintain his entire career, is this... Um, it, it's re- he becomes America's Jew, or he becomes a representative of the Jews. Whether he wanted to or not, that's how people viewed him, Jews and Gentiles. And so this becomes a very public decision for him, and a very difficult one. And I thought um, that kind of captured Hank Greenberg's dilemma of his career, you know, weighing baseball against his uh, background. And and I think he struck upon this, um, this uh, balance between being able to assimilate and, st- and be part of American culture and also remain true to his faith and his identity. So I thought that was an appropriate place to start. Oh, absolutely. And then if you could just talk about then what happens with, with Russia Sherman. I don't want to give it away. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he decided, you know, in the, in the Spanish race, <clears throat> he's carrying the team, basically. He hasn't missed a game yet this year. The rest of the team's slumping. Uh, Geringer's still hitting, but otherwise they're slumping. Greenberg's won the last two games with his bat. He decides to play. He hits two home runs. He uh, the, the Tigers win two to one, and then um, nine days later he decides to sit on Yom Kippur and he kind of strikes this balance. Uh, by then it was a little easier decision because the Tigers had a seven game lead over the Yankees. But he uh, he was able you know made, uh, play when they needed him and sit when he could. And uh, throughout his career he never played on Yom Kippur. And so it wasn't just that one season. It was um, five. Five years when Yom Kippur fell during the baseball season, he had a game and he didn't play. <clears throat> okay, now if we can step back about a, a year and a half earlier, mm-hmm. uh, chapter four entitled "The Elusive Hebrew Star," it opens this way: uh, In January 1933, Adolf Hitler became Germany's Chancellor. Two months later, Heinrich Himmler, the police president of Munich commissioned the construction of a prison at a vacant Dachau munitions factory that would become the prototype for future Nazi concentration camps. Meanwhile, Henry Greenberg headed to San Antonio for spring training with the Tigers. If you could just speak a little bit about that time, uh, what what Henry Greenberg was going through. Uh, we all know what was going on now in 1933 in yeah. Germany. You know, it, well, I, I figured to tell Greenberg's story, I really had to put him in the context of his times. <clears throat> because it, we had, if Greenberg were playing today, he'd be a great ball player, right? But it, it's kind of like Ryan Braun or Kevin Euclid. Um, the fact that they're Jewish is not nearly as important as it was back in 1933 for Greenberg. And um, I just toured the Holocaust Museum a couple weeks ago when we were in D.C. And, you know, you read that and I remember <clears throat> telling my kids, you know, about Dachau and stuff. And it's like that was such an enormous period in our history, <clears throat> and and people were and, and in thirty three, you know, the uh, it was just beginning and um, thirty four, thirty five, and here comes this guy who's six four, two twenty, when the average ball player is only five eleven, and people looked to him and he broke every stereotype just by being who he was, being on the field, you know, uh, that Jews were weak and unathletic and um, and not good at sports, and here he comes and people just. They loved him, and he was one of the heirs, and the Jews claimed him as a hero. And uh, he gave Jews something to feel good about that they could rally around at a time, you know, just a horrific time in history when there was no state of Israel. People needed something to rally around or a person to rally around, and there was Hank Greenberg, and he became the standard bearer for that generation. So it's a, he gave them hope and a chance to feel good when it was very hard to feel good about being a Jew. 
Okay, so now we're going to go to a... He's already... Uh, his career is going for quite a bit at this point. I just want to read one paragraph, and then if you, we're going to lead, it's going to lead us into the irony, so to speak, of, of him being in Detroit and a couple of other guys being in Detroit. Uh, this is after... This is the, uh, when he was closing in on Babe Ruth's home run record, a single-season home run record. Hank had not bettered Ruth... And he had not stopped Hitler, but he had single-handedly succeeded in changing the way Americans saw Jews. He had given his co-religionists a retort to every charge of weakness or timidity or ineptness, a single word that could stand up to any form of prejudice, Greenberg. And I've always found it fascinating, the, the irony of the number one Jewish star in, in the world, the, the great ball players in Detroit, of all places, and you have Henry Ford and Father Coughlin. Is it Coughlin or Coughlin? Uh, I don't I've heard it both ways. Wait, the Beavis from Detroit. Coughlin. Coughlin? Yeah. That's appropriate. Uh, so, uh, uh, either, uh, I've always found that very ironic, that, that mix. And if you could just take us there. Yeah, well, <clears throat> um, Ford, uh, considered the arch-anti-Semite of America, he had this paper, the Dearborn Independent, in the 20s he was writing screeds against the Jews. And then Coughlin had this uh, radio show. He's a Roman Catholic priest in suburban Detroit, and he had a radio show where he would uh, spew anti-Jewish rhetoric and uh, had 10 million listeners, many of whom lapped up this uh, propaganda. So here comes Hank Greenberg to this milieu and um, and it, again you know transform the way people do things but there's a, in Aviva's film Harry Eisenstadt the pitcher who was standing in Tiger Stadium he and Hank had a very good game um, in July I want to say July 25th 1938 and um, maybe it was July 28th but 38 and what was ironic is uh, Mickey Cochran said after the game, you guys are going to have to go hide out because every Jew in Detroit is going to be after you. You know, to, It was a doubleheader. Uh, Eisenstadt got both of the got credit for the win. Both, uh, he came out and relieved both games, got both wins. Greenberg had the game when he hit in both games. And so um, Cochran said, you're going to have to hide out because all the Jews in Detroit are going to be looking for you. So they went to the Franklin Hills Country Club. And <coughs> as they walked in, everyone applauded. That same night across Detroit, Henry Ford was celebrating his 75th birthday and received a medal from Hitler that had been that was given to him, and it was the highest medal of honor given to a non-German citizen. Hitler took, uh, was inspired by Greenberg and had a photo. Or sorry, not Greenberg, but <laughs> inspired. Just wanted to see if you're paying attention. Um, he was inspired by Hitler. Hitler was inspired by Ford, and he had a picture of Ford up in his office. And so, you know, that's the kind of. Um, kind of tension and uh, hatred and, and uh, awfulness in the world that Greenberg was playing in. Did, there, did, did Greenberg and, and Ford ever meet? Or? Okay, so here's something I found very interesting and even troubling in my research. I, um, you know, there were, there was, it, after I, I got to say, by the way, Philip Spitz was here, my agent, and uh, thank you for coming in. He sold this book, and I was, uh, just after he sold it, I realized there was another biography coming out about Greenberg. And I was worried that, oh, my God, you know, I'm going to get scooped here. And so I felt this challenge to, to write a better book and to do more research, to out-research the other author. And uh, so I went everywhere. I went to the Tiger Archives and read mail that Greenberg got, you know, anti-Semitic uh, stuff and some real praiseworthy stuff. I went to here to the Jewish American uh, Historical Society and, and read his scrapbooks. I went 
um, to get county records, I, the Hall of Fame. Anyway, I went all over. I also got his military records. On his, in his military records, Greenberg wrote on a form, not just once, but several times, that he had worked for Henry Ford and, not, and reported to Harry Bennett, who was the security guy. He worked as a personnel investigator. He didn't just do meet and greet stuff, you know, shaking hands, but he did, um, he said his role was to investigate people subversive to the company. So, in effect, he was a spy for Henry Ford. And that could have included spying upon Walter Briggs, the owner of the Tigers, who had had a fallout out with Harry Bennett. And I found this odd and, and somewhat troubling that Greenberg would do that, uh, go to work for Ford. Um, and I confirmed it in the Ford uh, Motor Company's archives, but I was not able to find anyone who could comment more on what Greenberg did. You know, it was 1935, it's a long time ago. But it was um, that was an odd connection that I discovered, you know, one little bit of information I found in my research. Yeah. And since you mentioned military, so let's let's go there. Uh, Hank had reached the pinnacle of his career. 29 years old, he was a two-time MVP, had just played in his third World Series, and had the distinction of being the highest paid player in the national pastime. He was young, healthy, and handsome. But with war looming, he was not the master of his own destiny. Yeah, this is so spring of '41. Hank is the reigning MVP. He's the highest paid place player in baseball. He's the top sports celebrity in the country. Remember, this is before DiMaggio hit 56 uh, games or hit 56 games safely before uh, Williams hit 400 for the last time. So Greenberg was the guy, but he'd also been drafted, <clears throat> and he requested on his draft questionnaire to be able to be considered class two, which is sort of like irreplaceable to his business. And some made arguments that he was. Nobody could play uh, like Greenberg or, or fill in Greenberg's shoes on the Tigers. And this was before America got in the war as well. Well, when that leaked out, it caused this great controversy and sparked this huge national debate whether or not um, one had the right to pursue one the American dream and make as much money as one could while one was able to, or whether one should fulfill a patriotic duty to serve one's country. And, and I mean, it was national headlines and all over the place, and, and this national debate, and people weighed in you know, on both sides. People defended Greenberg, people didn't defend Greenberg. But then, which didn't make it any easier, Greenberg, who had flat feet from the time he was a kid, failed his physical. And so um, people wondered, how could Greenberg, uh, a baseball player, a professional baseball player, run the bases but not march in the army? He declared unfit to march in the army. So that just, you know, added gasoline to the fire, and it became, became even more, a very uh, difficult time for Greenberg. Um, and he said, you know, I'll go. When they call me, I'll go. But uh, then anyway, his draft board had another physical, and lo and behold, his feet were considered fine for military service. He went into the Army. He became this um, kind of model soldier, and people kind of quickly embraced him for that decision. Well, then he gets discharged December 5th, 1941. He's excited to resume his uh, baseball career. Two days later, Pearl Harbor is attacked. Greenberg is the first player to re-enlist. Uh, and then uh, when he did, that's when he really be- achieved that status as an American hero for being willing to set aside his, making the sacrifice, personal sacrifice, to set aside his baseball career, knowing it would be a long war, and being willing to uh, serve the country. And that Americans embraced him then as this, this true hero. And he, won a lot of well-deserved praise at that time. So now let's go to a a spot after he's back. Aviva spoke about this. Uh, 
his last year was Jackie Robinson's first year, mm-hmm. and uh, 1947. Mm-hmm. And there's a a quote that uh, is in your book and is, is known, uh, where Jackie said, "Class tells it sticks out all over Mr. Greenberg." Yeah. If you can just speak a little bit about there, what happened? Well, one of you, this film tells that story so nicely and ends on that. It's you know you. Kind of the credits rolling, you just had this good feeling about Greenberg and, and what he, what a mensch he was. He, um, and if you've seen the film 42, the Pittsburgh Pirates don't come off looking too good. But what's in it, the film, of course, is a little off. Uh, Major League Baseball historian John Thorne said, uh, going to Hollywood for your history is like going to the bakery for uh, to buy shoes. And <laughs> I found that true when I saw the movie. Um, though I do like that it makes Jack out as lovable. But so, uh, what is true is, is you know, people were catchers were spitting on Jackie's shoes. Uh, they were throwing it, pictures were thrown in his head. Um, guys were spiking him on base, and um, he had, that everyone could see. But then he had just revealed that there also had been threats on his wife, uh, threats to kidnap his infant son, threats on Jackie's life, and he was real shaken by this. And he, that had just become public, and he goes to play in Philadelphia, and the players point bats at him like rifles. And Ben Chapman uh, is telling his guys to yell at him. He's telling his pitchers to throw it at uh, Robinson. Well, Robinson almost has a nervous breakdown. He's that undone by all this. The load is, you know, the pressure is really on him. Then they, the Dodgers go to Pittsburgh. And <clears throat> the, the movie shows how on May 17th, uh, pitcher Bean Robinson. But on May 15th, the first game of that series, uh, Robinson bunts. The pitcher fields the ball, throws it wide. Greenberg stretches for the throw. And the two men collide. And Robinson goes down. And the crowd just holds its breath because there's been this build-up thinking there's going to be a race riot, you know, with this black man playing ball with white men. And had it been any other white player, it might have erupted into a riot. But it was Greenberg. So he just went after the ball. Robinson scooted on to second. Next inning, Greenberg reaches first where Robinson's playing first base. And he says, hey, listen, I, I should add, I'm sorry, are you okay? And uh, Robinson said, yeah, I just lost my balance. Greenberg said, listen, I know it's tough right now but you're doing great. Hang in there. You'll be fine. And Robinson was um, really buoyed by that. You know, here's a rare a, a rare moment. You think about this. I mean, it's hard enough for his teammates, some of his white teammates to embrace him, but here's an opponent who's embracing him and giving him encouragement. And I think it was at such a critical time for Jack when he was feeling so vulnerable that yeah, afterward, you know, he said, class tells it sticks out all over Mr. Greenberg. And we have the uh, the smartest, most interesting crowd of any place you're going to be, I promise you. Good. So we're going to get to their questions because okay. they're going to be fantastic. Yeah. I just have two last questions that are kind of grouped. Okay. If we can just go to Hank's now post-playing career. Okay. He becomes uh, a team executive and an, and an owner. Yeah. Uh, so there's two areas I'd like to just touch on with you if we could. Mm-hmm. One is, here's this amazing ball player doesn't happen every day, who goes on to become an executive. Beyond that, he also becomes a part owner. So mm-hmm. if you could just talk, one, a little bit, how, was he, how he was able to become an owner as well. Mm-hmm. And if you could speak a little bit about, in that role, his relationship with Al Rosen, who was kind of the next great Jewish ball player coming mm-hmm. along. They had a fascinating relationship with each other, and if you could just touch on that as well. Yeah, well, uh, Greenberg was one of the few guys really bright enough to make that that uh, jump or leap from the playing field to the front office. And you, know, you think about it, there aren't a lot of guys 
who've done that. And I mean, the history of baseball. And Hank was one of the first. And I, I, I'd have to look this up. Maybe someone here knows. But I would bet he was the first Hall of Fame player to do that, to make that jump. And maybe I'm wrong, but someone else knows. But, you know, he was, he was that bright that he was able to do that. And Bill Beck was the guy who invited him into the Indians. And then Beck left, and Greenberg became owner and GM. Um, and I think he was able to do it because of his ambition. I mean, Greenberg was just, he was an ambitious guy. And when he set his mind to becoming a good ball player, he worked and worked and worked at it, and he got there. And when he set his mind to working in the front office, he got there. Um, Al Rosen came up, and at first, Greenberg got criticized for promoting Rosen. Rosen had done well in the minor leagues, and there was a very popular guy on uh, playing third base for the Indians at the time, Ken Keltner. And Keltner's famous. He's the footnote to Joe DiMaggio's 56-game uh, hitting streak. The guy made, a really, I think, two really nice plays uh, on that day that ended Green, uh, DiMaggio's hitting streak. But anyway, um, Greenberg replaces Rosen, or Keltner with Rosen. When Rosen goes out to take the field for the first day of the season, fans are booing him. And, and in part because Cle- uh, here's a Jew taking over for a Catholic, but also some of the derision was directed at Greenberg. You know, they thought it was a case of nepotism of a, you know, one Jew promoting another. Rosen quickly uh, squelched those doubts. I mean, he had a great rookie year. Um, difficulty was, when Greenberg took over as general manager, he said, I'm going to be a guy players can come and talk to. And I know what it was like to be a player, and I'm going to be on their side. Well, I think what he forgot was his competitive nature. Because when he took over... In the role of negotiating, you know, switched on the other side of the table, he was still playing to win. Only this time he was representing management instead of the players. And so Rosen comes in after a season where he's almost won the Triple Crown. And uh, he's expecting a raise. And Greenberg says, well, let's see. How'd you do? And he pulls out a book of his fourth year in the league, and he starts comparing, you know, like, okay, I, you hit, uh, and I'm making this up because I don't know the exact words, but like, you hit 317, I hit 325. You had 132 RBIs. I had 156. You had, and he goes down the, the column, right? And poor Rosen, he walks out. He gets a, takes a pay cut, and he walks out feeling like he's had a lousy year. And he came this close. He came a hundredth of a percentage point away from winning the Triple Crown. And he, uh, you know, walks out feeling lousy. I think, and and I talked to Al Rosen, and, and he, it's still a sore spot for him. I think, you know, he's kind of forgiven Greenberg, but I think it still hurts. And he. Um, it, I think what happened to Hank is he was competitive and he was playing to win whatever he played. And when he was in the role of general manager and negotiating salaries, he wanted to get the best deal possible. And sadly, L. Rosen paid for it. At the end, Rosen was bitter. There was a contract dispute. And um, Rosen, uh, Greenberg, Beck had actually been, came in as an intermediary and uh, he tried to negotiate a settlement. Rosen was willing to agree. Greenberg refused. He was stubborn. And then Al Lopez, who managed the Indians, wanted Greenberg to or wanted uh, Greenberg to let Rosen go and play for the White Sox, where Lopez was managing. Greenberg said no; he wouldn't let let uh, Rosen go. And so ultimately, Rosen retired. And I think Greenberg is responsible for cutting short his career. It wasn't Hank's finest moment as a, a general manager. And you know, when I was writing this book, it's like I came to really admire Greenberg and like him, and I was rooting for him to do well. But unfortunately, he didn't in every situation. I think what it showed me is, you know, just his humanity. We all have flaws and we all fail. And probably looking back on it, Greenberg may have wished he'd done it differently. Or he may have justified it. Um, but that, that's the way it played out. So we're going to bring Aviva up now. And we're going to 
take questions from our crowd. So who would like to uh, lead it off tonight? I, I just want to say one thing. In 1935, the Tigers are also in the World Series, and Yom Kippur was up. And I have uh, Joe Greenberg talking about how Hank was going to play on Yom Kippur during the World Series, but God intervened, and he broke his wrist. So God didn't break his wrist. No, just kidding. Actually, I just wanted to say one thing, too. It's like um, I was hoping Jay would ask me how to get the inspiration for this book, yeah. because... I grew up uh, in Minneapolis going to Twins games with my dad, watching Rod Carew and Tony Oliva and Harmon Killebrew. And I loved baseball in the 70s. I mean, that was my era. And um, so I didn't really know a lot about baseball pre... You know, I knew about the Yankees in the 50s and guys like uh, Mickey Mantle and Joe DiMaggio and Yogi Bear and Lou Bear. Anyway, I'd heard all those names, but I didn't really know about Hank Greenberg until I was driving my car one day and I heard this radio show on NPR about this new documentary that had come out. And that was Aviva's film. So that was the first, my real introduction to Hank Greenberg. And then I watched it, and I was amazed. And years later, when I was ready to write a book, I, um, Aviva was one of the first calls I made. She's been very uh, helpful to me, not just in promoting this and taking our show on the road, but in uh, giving me transcripts for, uh, from interviews to use for uh, my research. And, you know, guys that had already died I couldn't talk to. She provided transcripts. It was very helpful. So thanks, Aviva. Nice to be here again. <laughs> okay. Okay, so it's very nice he didn't play in Yom Kippur. How in heaven's name did he work for Ford? A noted anti-Semite—it's uh, hard to understand. It, it was for me too, and I—it's I, one of those big questions I have that I wasn't able to resolve. It's probably the most nagging question I had. Did his sons have any information? They, they didn't know about it. They didn't they know. know. No, I'd never heard it reported anywhere until there was a little like one-inch column in the Detroit News about him having getting this job for the Ford Motor Company and he was at a car festival and he was what you know, shaking was hands. This? this is the after the 35 season. Well, you so, know, there, it is true that Ford, especially they had the protocols of Zion at um, dealerships, but the Jewish community in Detroit confronted Ford and he apologized. But I don't know when that happened. But he, he never changed his, his tune. He yeah. he changed uh, or he, he changed his tune. He didn't change his tone. He can sorry. He changed his tone. Didn't change his tune. Kept saying anti-Semitic things, but in a little different way. Uh, um, but so I, I I don't think Ford forgave. He also went to baseball games. If you see the the film film, not the uh, extras, um, you see a shot of Coughlin and Ford at games. I mean, they had to be at the games. I mean, they had to see him play because of the games. And yeah. in terms of Al Rosen. Uh, I know the learners who are the owners of the Nats, and in the winter season, they're in uh, Palm Springs, and Al Rosen is still, I, I've actually met him last year, still is upset about what happened, and I had an interview with him where that was in it about uh, Hank's dealings with him, because I didn't deal with the managerial years in the film itself, it's in the extras, so. My father grew up in the same neighborhood as Hank Greenberg, and he was about 10 years behind him at uh, James Monroe High School, and he told me a story about that uh, when Hank Greenberg came to play the Yankees, he came back to the old neighborhood and loaded up a bunch of the neighborhood kids into a taxi and, and had them go to the stadium, and it was my first time my father was ever in a taxi, <laughs> and he was a Detroit fan for the rest of his life. And, but one question is, did, did uh, Hank Greenberg have any, I use the word, contact with uh, Ty Cobb? He did, actually. Ty Cobb was influential to uh, with him um, when he, Cobb spoke to him early on in about 33. 
Greenberg's rookie year, and he told him how he'd go off the face pictures, and he'd think, you know, it's, Hank would be nervous, you know, two strikes on him or pressure situation, men on base. And um, Cobb told him how when he'd go up, he'd think, instead of, you know, reflecting on how he might fail or something, you know, the pressure on him, he'd think, this poor son of a bitch has to pitch to Ty Cobb. <laughs> and Greenberg uh, said that was very influential for him, and it, it, that he was able to adjust his mentality to put the pressure back on the pitcher. And, uh, mm-hmm. so. you, know, you know, getting back to the Rosh Hashanah story, whether Hank would play or not, um, it was fun, funny because he, he went to rabbis and tried to see if they can get dispensation. And if you remember in the film, one rabbi said to him, well, there's something in the Talmud that says Roman kids are playing, our kids were playing in Jerusalem. So, but as Dick Schaaf says in the film, but he found out later it was Roman kids, it weren't Jewish kids. <laughs> then the, there, was, there was all these debates in the newspapers, including, well, he could play that day if they didn't sell anything, um, you, know, you, know, or, you know, some orthodox ruling with that. I mean, you know, it's always brought up in today's world, should you play or not? Um, but I think, uh, and I, and Alan Rosen actually told a story because he was with, uh, the Yankees exact, exact office yeah. that he got a, a letter from someone saying, I looked to see if you were at the stadium on Yom Kippur or not. And you were, you know, and so he wrote them a note back. Well, if you were looking on TV on Yom Kippur, what are you criticizing? Me <laughs> but unfortunately I didn't have that on film or I would have put that in the DVD. <laughs> Um, and I think also it was the first time America ever knew that we have a Jewish holiday named Yom Kippur. Um, and I think it's sort of incredible that the convergence of learning about a religion happened in, uh, on the baseball field. And, I, and, you know, people say, what was more important, uh, Hank's story and, of course, um, Sandy Koufax. But I think you can always pitch, have a pitcher pitch another day. And 65 is a lot different than 34. Well, you know, that was part of America's education was Greenberg. And before Robinson integrated baseball, Greenberg enlightened America. And it was just what you said. I mean, there were people who, Hank's teammates, who'd never met a Jew before in their life. Um, there were fans. Horns. Yeah, there were fans who thought, who'd never heard of a, a Jew or a Yom Kippur. I mean, one of Greenberg's teammates, the guy pitching that day on Rosh Hashanah, El Nakir, lived in a restricted community, didn't know what it meant. It meant no Jews. But he didn't know that. I mean, that's how kind of ignorant a lot of people were at the time. And so here comes Greenberg, and he kind of, he teaches them. That's supposed to be from India. But if you came from the Northeast, like most Jews did, that settled in Philadelphia, Maryland, and New York, we were very aware of Jews. And remember, we were first-generation Americans. Picture yourself when you were 10 or 9, when you were just learning to love baseball. We were the first generation that went into that. We have parents that, oh, a Jew is so big in baseball. Everything that a Jew did became very important because we didn't think that we could do all these things that other people could do. And so we had such pride. Yeah. So that's why you can't you can't even compare Sandy Koufax's days to Hank Greenberg's days for that reason because the world was so different to us. Right. You right. know, the, there's a line in the film where uh, someone who grew up in Detroit, one of my fans, talks about you would walk down the street when Hank was playing. The Tigers were playing in Detroit, and of course, everyone just heard by radio. You didn't have t- TV then, and you could see every porch the game was going on. Well, there's a scene in 42 
in an African-American neighborhood. And as someone, as they're walking, you also hear the game going on. And I thought, God, that's just exactly, you know, what the following was like. I'm not sure. I think because Jackie was married, uh, he didn't get wedding, uh, wedding um, you know, as many groupies. Yeah. Because I think that was, that's the other thing. I have this wonderful groupie in the film itself. Well, I had filmed another woman who was a groupie. And in the uh, extras, she talks about how she would call Hank Greenberg up. And over the phone, he would help her do her math homework. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine calling A-Rod yeah. to ask them? Well, actually, A-Rod has a lot of time now. So <laughs> maybe he could... That's about the only thing you'd be good for right now. Here's a, a trivia question. 93 Jews in the Hall of Fame. And the third one is Lou Boudreau. But he didn't he didn't identify as a Jew. When, oh, do you have anything on Greenberg and Al Rosen's uh, connection to, Green, to, to Lou Boudreau? I mean, well, Boudreau was the shortstop. Yeah. And a manager for the Indian Greenberg was a general manager. Right. His mother was Jewish. But he didn't. Um, he was raised Catholic, basically, yeah. and so he didn't really identify. But Martin Abramowitz, who was kind of the I Ralph Bronco to him, though Martin decided who's in, who's out. You know, in terms of major, Jewish major league, he's the guy who put out the baseball cards. Right, right. For instance, uh, Adam Sandler, you know, anoints Rod Carew, but uh, Carew was never bar mitzvah, even though he, you know, sat Kaddish when his daughter died, and, and he. Is observable. Well, I, don't, I don't think he ever converted. No, not not officially. So yeah. he, he practiced, but he's not necessarily. He didn't officially convert. So Rod's out, even though he's in the hall. By the way, I think it was Eddie Collins who was the first one who became a GM. Was it? Okay. Um, Somebody had to know that here. And, 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 and among the extras is a, uh, a scene I did called the poker scene, and my brother and some of his friends sat around a poker game. Uh, voicing who would be the all-star Jewish team. And my brother counts Rod Carew. Does he? Okay. Well, actually, His daughter I, was Bob Mitzvah. He's Jewish. I, I have a Facebook page for Hank Greenberg, the Hero Heroes. And uh, this month you can vote on um, the greatest Jewish ball player of all time. So you can go to that page and cast a vote. Uh, in I think next month we're going to do who's the best number five of all time. You know, <laughs> it's a luscious company: Pujols and DiMaggio and Greenberg, Lou Boudreau. Um, no, wait, Luke Evans. Sorry, but anyway, um, then uh, next uh, June we're going to do uh, the Jewish All Star Baseball team. So you can go cast your vote for you know position by uh, by position. Yes, I'm going. Just talk about. Going through old books about Greenberg, like the mistakes and stuff that kind of carried through a lot of his life, and just trying to correct that, like what kind of challenge was that? Well, his own autobiography. Yeah, Greenberg. At the end of his life, um, Greenberg recorded his stories, uh, memories of his life and career, and uh, after he died, uh, Ira Burko lovingly crafted that into a book, and it's. Uh, but what happened is Burko had to fill in the blanks, and so the narrative gets a little interrupted and choppy. But also, as you can imagine, someone telling stories about things that happened 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, you know, through time, some of the details get lost and things blend together. Anyway, so as I was doing my research, I realized, you know, Greenberg would say, this happened on this date. Well, no, it actually happened this year or even this season. Or he'd say, so-and-so is the umpire. Well, no, it was somebody else. Or, and, and these things, I realized there were just all these inconsistencies that then became taken on faith. And actually, um, the, uh, whether or not he, he consulted a rabbi before he played on the High Holy Days or didn't play on the High Holy Days, 
I couldn't find any evidence of that. I found one account where, after he played Rosh Hashanah, a newspaper account said they showed him the rabbis, and there are two rabbis, right. Franklin and Tuman, who, um, and their opinions on what he should play. But this was after he'd already played the game and hit his two home runs that he, someone showed it papers to him in the clubhouse. Because it was the newspapers who gone who and asked the making rabbis. A yeah. um, but that was the kind of thing that I found, and I thought, I want to set the record straight on what happened in his career. Wasn't that considered a young adult book? Uh, uh, Irish book? No, he, he wrote, wrote a young adult, adult book as well. There, there were two. Oh, a kids book. Oh. He wrote a kid's book, but it, he wrote a you know full-fledged book. Oh. And I was really lucky, because Hank sat um, uh, by his pool, which you can hear some of the noise, at a tape recorder, and the family gave me the. I transferred that, and that's really his voice throughout the film. Mm-hmm. So I was really lucky to be able Which to have that. It's a great thing to be able to hear his voice in there, definitely. As reclusive as Kopax has a reputation being, did he and Greenberg ever meet? Did they ever talk about the, the Young Kipper question? Uh, I only discovered evidence of one conversation that they had, and you know, you, we'd like to think they knew each other and were close, right? Because uh, they both, well, Greenberg ended up in L.A., and obviously Koufax played for L.A. Um, after the Dodgers moved out there. Um, but I only found a record of one conversation, and, that, and I, not that it included anything about um, about uh, Young poor playing the Holy Day. Did you find anything? Well, I asked Steve Greenberg to ask uh, Sandy if he would be interviewed, because, of course, I wanted him in the film. And he said that growing up, Hank was too much older than him to have been an inspiration, and he declined. I don't know if you re- I read the New York Times on the train up here today, so I don't know if it was yesterday or today's, but they, they have some quotes of Sandy about the uh, pitching of the Dodgers, so mm. he's still involved with the team. He threw out the first pitch, yeah, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. But they're also talking about the problem of pitching. Yeah, so maybe they're going to call him They're back. not the only team. They're going to come out of retirement. <laughs> I think he may, he may have to come talk to Strasburg in Washington. Did you have another question? Something that hasn't come up yet. The, the pursuit of Ruth's record and whether or not there was an understanding in baseball that Greenberg would not have that opportunity to put the record. Is that a myth? Is it true? You know, I think... Do you want to take that? In? Well, uh, Hank feels it wasn't true. He was just... He says it in the film because... I did have an earlier interview with him. He says, no, no, I was just so glad to have it. His son disavows that. One of his fellow players thinks they didn't want to you know, pitch good balls. But I'll tell you what's in the extras. Um, there is a story of 30 years afterwards, Hank gets a letter in the mail. Is that the one you're going to read? No. Oh, gets no. a letter in the mail saying, I told my grandson that I was catching that day, and in fact, you really did strike out. And Hank wrote back and says, yeah, that's really true. But the, it was a nice uh, umpire. So he probably should have gotten 57 home runs. So, uh, you know, I think there was a dispute. I also think I've always had this theory about a psychobabble. Uh, Hank so admired Babe Ruth that maybe there was something in him. Of course, you know, they were rained out that he would have had one more game. Or the records now, you know, they play more games. Yeah, they I was just going to uh, read this past because there's been a lot of debate about that, right? And, and uh, a lot of discussion. I just write that. For the rest of his life, Hank dismissed the notion that anti-Semitism conspired against his pursuit as pure baloney. Like he told Eisenstadt, he did not believe in using the fact he was Jewish as an excuse. Yet he had to wonder 
Pitchers walked Jimmy Fox less in 1932 when he hit 58 home runs than they walked Greenberg in 1938. And Fox's base on balls percentage did not rise significantly in September the way Hanks did. On the other hand, pitchers walked Fox the same number of times as Greenberg, 119 in 1938, when Fox was voted the most valuable player. In, um, the statistics could be argued either way. And then Hanks' team, teammates are divided, and then your, your DVD, they, they speak for both sides that. Some say yes, some say no. But then I, I write, they are probably both right. Some wanted to see Hank get the record and were even willing to help him. Witness uh, Dickey tipping him off on pitches, so the Yankees catcher you know, told him what was coming. Um, others, like those who yelled venom at him from the dugouts, did not want to see him better Ruth and certainly did not want to be the pitcher on the mound who contributed to his success. In a late September game, one pitcher walked by Hank and told him, you're not going to get any home runs off me, you Jew son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some, I think... We're helping him to break the record and want him to see it, break it. Even a guy who dropped a foul pop so Hank could have another swing. Um, and then there were those who certainly didn't want to see him break it and did what they could to stop it. What's interesting to me is in 45, he comes back, and um, the 331 is the number of home runs he had. I mean, can you imagine he, Williams, uh, DiMaggio, the kind of numbers they would have had home runs if they hadn't gone so many years to war? I think there should be asterisks. By their name, saying no, they were not about steroids, but about what kind of records you know they would have had. But it's amazing to me that uh, forty-five story of what the senators were saying, because the war was over and people were knowing about the Holocaust and to have that kind of anti-Semitism. On the other hand, they were referring him less to as the Jewish player. So things had changed somewhat, but not enough to. You know, it is ironic, of course, because the learners are a very proud Jewish family. They know the uh, nationals now. But back in '45, it was still obviously politically incorrect, because we see that from scene 42. Yeah. Bill James thinks that uh, if Greenberg had had the chance to hit against replacement pitching during the war and played all those years, he would have hit 600 home runs. Yeah. I mean, he's, when he retired, he was fifth highest on the all-time uh, home run list. Uh, with his 331. And also, he uh, is sixth on the all-time slugging average, which combines home run average with batting average. That's ahead of Stan Musial, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron. I mean, Kringberg was a really, really good ball player. And how many people have seen 42? You know, it opens with the players coming back. They mentioned Musial, Williams, and um, Dem- and Willi- Williams to Musial. Mutual, and they did not mention Hank. Yeah. But there's one reference in terms of you know what they would call Hank, which I hate yeah. saying that word. And I, 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 they really could have done that first base c- collision story. Yeah. I think it would enhance the film. And how observant a Jew was, was Greenberg from his youth to his marriage to Mrs. Kimball's daughter to later in life? You know, I'm glad you asked that because often the story is told that Hank wasn't very observant, that he was just trying to set, uh, please his parents. But what I found was, as a young man, you know, after he left home, um, he was still observant. <coughs> he uh, lived in a boarding house where he could eat, you know, the cedar meal. He uh, um, would go to Shul on his own, you know, and uh, that Rosh Hashanah, he went to uh, synagogue in the morning, morning, and then he went to the ballpark. He, did, he went back the second day services. He went to Kol Nidra services. And then uh, Yom Kippur. So he was observant. Um, it, I don't think he was, I mean, he, he didn't go every Sabbath, but he did, and I don't know that he was at candles, 
But he did, when he was in uh, town, he'd always come back, and when he, you know, here in New York, he'd always get back home to the Bronx to have a Friday night dinner with his mother, because that was very important to her. So, I mean, he was more observant than I, I had understood anyway. It was during the war that he lost faith in religion, and he became disillusioned with the harm done in religion's name. And so, after that, um, he still didn't play tennis on Yom Kippur when he was uh, uh, older. That was kind of his way of observing it, but he did... He, Carol Gimble was a Jew in name only, and the Gimble family did not practice. And so he was, um, uh, he, they didn't raise their kids Jewish, so he just kind of, I think he, has, he lived out his uh, faith by supporting Israel after um, he retired. In the extras, um, his sister-in-law, Marilyn Greenberg, talks about going Friday night dinner to the Greenberg family, and they would always have a Shabbos dinner. And that's very cute. On the other hand, Glenn Greenberg talks about when he was 13, his father took him to the planetarium and did, you know, and said, you're a man now, and he couldn't quite understand it. Where his daughter, Alva, doesn't realize until she goes to college that she's Jewish. On the other hand, Alva's kids, certainly Steve's kids, have had bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvahs. So, you know, a, a lot of it, I think, was the times. I mean, I think it would be very hard to be a major league baseball player and be completely observant. But on the other hand, on the other other hand, he <laughs> obviously was so much a symbol for Jews, and for you know, as uh, someone says, there was, he was a symbol of our strength, our Messiah. Just to mention this topic in the transcript of Greenberg's oral history, that's in the forty seconds to library that he did with the American Jewish community. Right. He's not too pleased with all the Jewish questions, and he seems less close to the religion being followed, I think, for the reasons that you mentioned earlier as to what happened over here and afterwards, when he seems not a very devout. Yeah, well, I remember reading that uh, transcript, and I, had go, I felt really out of place, you know, being this tall, blonde guy <laughs> uh, in the um, Dorrit uh, Center. Was um, your hair blonde then? It would be platinum. <laughs> uh, and, uh, Having to wear the little gloves, and I was taking notes with pen. And the woman came over and reprimanded me. I could only write in pencil. 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 Yeah, yeah, a little golf pencil. But anyway, the, I think that was the interview was done when he was older. It was 1980. Yeah, it was. He was 69, 70 years old. Although in the interview about young Kipper, he goes into Charlotte's attic and he says, "I never knew I was a hero until that day I walked in and everyone stood up and I have a judge that I didn't use in the film talk about how his." Bubby, his grandmother, would never stop praying until that day Hank walked in and, you know, everyone just applauded. So um, I think he felt very proud about that. And Steve says in the film, you know, toward the end of the 30s, he felt like every home run was against Hitler. I mean, he got it. Mm -hmm. And he said it was a spur to make him do better, the hostility. I think he always felt good about and embraced his identity as a Jew. I think it was he lost faith in religion. Um, but he always felt proud to be a Jew. My understanding. All right, so I think what we're going to do now, uh, I don't think John and Aviva have to run out to their, their no. next appearance, but uh, I'm sure they'll stay around to sign. Uh, just for those of you listening to the podcast, Aviva Kempner's docu- documentary, The Life and Times of Hank Greenberg, it's fantastic. 
if you need to, you can always contact us. I can tell you how to get in touch and order that. There's a new DVD with over two hours of extras. And the book, again, Hank Greenberg, The Hero of Heroes, John Rosengren from New American Library. And I think the way we'd like to close it, if you don't mind, John, is I'm going to give you the last word. And if you could just read, because if I read it, I'm going to cry, so you get to read this. Uh, It's the first paragraph of the epilogue, and then we can say goodnight. Okay, and for anyone who wants more, um, you can go to (coughs) hankgreenbergfilm.org to see more about uh, Viva's film, or hankgreenberg.net to see more about the the book and to take the trivia quiz. I challenge you all to take the trivia quiz. Um, uh, What's the Jewish picture with most career victories? Yes, Ken Holtzman. Everyone thinks Sandy Kovacs is Ken Anyway, here's the, the uh, last bit for Hank Greenberg um, the, from the epilogue. A man does not expire with his last breath. He lives on in memories and the changes he wrought. Hank Greenberg is not dead. So long as his story is told, he remains with us. And I ask you to keep spreading the word about Hank Greenberg. As <laughs> Do you have to sell over here? Yeah, the two of you could sell. Okay.